Hey folks, you're ready for another Always Be Watching. This week, up is down, left is right. We have no idea what's going on. There's temporal confusion everywhere. I don't even know what decade it is. Actually, I do know what decade it is. It's 2020s, 2020s? I think that's what we refer to it as. <laughs> I think that's a sad. But look, it may as well be 1980s based on everything we're talking about this week. Folks, this is Always Be Watching, and we'll be talking about TV, because that's what we do here in, well, just a few seconds. Now, each and every darn week on this podcast, I'm joined by my good friend, Chris Yates. And Chris, before you start, I want you to think about this question quite hard. Mm. Do you remember a time when McDonald's used to sell pizza? <laughs> I do. Well, kind of I do. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in getting to the bottom of this. I wonder if there was a way, if only there was an investigative podcast or something <laughs> like that, that we could uh, uh, that we could investigate alongside and find out, get to the bottom of this question. This is it. So what people don't know, because this is an obscure thing that I stumbled across and have just forced it onto everyone, uh, there's this amazing podcast called, what's, what's that even called? It's, uh, do you remember when McDonald's sold pizza? It's called... Or is it Whatever Happens? Whatever, to? whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's. <laughs> whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's. And it is a, so far, 170-episode-long investigation into the very short period of time where McDonald's tried a, uh, like, adding pizza onto their menu. And this is, like, back in the early 90s. So I think for six months they tried at a number of restaurants. <laughs> There's a couple in, of restaurants in the, in the US that still hold on to having pizza at McDonald's, but they're far and few between. Um, this is, I love this section of the podcast where we tell people to listen to podcasts that are <laughs> unquestionably better than our own podcast. I don't know if it's how it's going to work in the long term, but I, I'm, I'm for it now. Look, let's not get too crazy with terms like better <laughs> and improve yourself and have a shower more than once every four days. Like, I, I don't want to hear that sort of thing. Not here, Fair not enough. now. But Chris, certainly not offering any of that kind of stuff. Yes. No, but yes, Dan. we talk about TV. That's what we do in this podcast. It's what we've always done. It's what we'll always continue to do, except for when we're talking about movies. Which happens a little bit. Yeah. I'll yep. be doing that today, actually. We are doing a bit of that today. So we've got a couple of things we're talking about this week. First of all, I'm going to kick us off with a brand new thing. It's the brand new TV version of The Fugitive. But we're going to talk about some other stuff as well. Chris is going to take us back to the 80s with a Talking Heads movie. What's well, a movie by David Byrne from the Talking Heads with a lot of Talking Heads music in it? Yeah, it's a Talking Heads movie. That's yeah. fair enough. What's it called? It's... It is called True Stories. True Stories. Uh, I'm also going to talk about a different TV show, also set in the 1980s. It's called Holmes and Catch Fire. And then after that, we're going to have a bit of a broader chat talking about the sort of undercurrent theme that I think has been running through this podcast since the very beginning, which is movies, TV, what's the difference between those two things anymore? Why can't it all just be one and the same? And we're going to talk about why and why not at the end of the podcast. But Chris, Excellent. first of all, can I talk to you about the brand new version of The Fugitive? I'm not going back to prison again for something I didn't do. Mike Farrow is our one and only suspect in this morning's bombing. He is currently at large and armed. Let's go make our case. Make no mistake. We're going to take him down. And if encountered, he's to be shot on sight. Now, Chris, you know The Fugitive, right? Very well. Yeah. A lot of, I didn't kill her. 
I don't care. You know, a bit of that business. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm mostly, the, the, I'm mostly familiar with the um, meme of the fugitive starring Milhouse uh, <laughs> from The Simpsons, uh, which I, which I guess was like the fugitive was a big deal for a while. There was a movie with Tommy Lee Jones and somebody Harrison Ford. You may have heard Harrison of it before. It's a pretty big deal. <laughs> In the, what am I going to say, late 90s? Is that about right? Uh, a little bit earlier, 1993, my friend. Oh, yeah, cool. That's well, That was my introduction to The Fugitive. But then, of course, I did watch some of the um, classic television program following on so, uh, from that movie. This is the thing. So The Fugitive originally started as a TV show. I think it ran for four seasons, started, I'm going to say, in 63, ran through to 67. So it was a TV show. It's about Dr. Richard Kimball. He's a doctor accused of killing his wife. He travels across the US in search of the one-armed man responsible for a murder. Each week in the 120-episode run, uh, Dr. Kimball got involved in helping people. And every week it'd be a different person he stumbles upon and you know, gets involved in their lives, helps them out, and then gets back onto his quest. In the very last episode, he gets the one-armed man and frees... Well clears himself and obviously he doesn't bring his wife back from the dead but you know it's as happy an ending as he possibly get <laughs> and i started thinking about the original fugitive show and like it resonated so obviously they made a live action film about it in 1993 but i'm wondering why it is that the fugitive as a as a concept as a premise actually resonated so heavily and i'm wondering if it's because of that final episode it actually resolves the show um so the actual tv show had an ongoing narrative where in the first episode the guy goes on the run then every episode, there's the looming spectre of the one-armed man. Like, at the very end, he catches the one-armed man, gets set free, and, you know, everyone shakes their hands, and, you know, he walks off with his life. Is it maybe the most satisfying conclusion to a TV show ever made? Certainly more satisfying than uh, when Seinfeld were all locked up in jail. Yeah, like, I think about all the shows that, like, are whining towards a final conclusion that wraps everything up, and they're always invariably disappointing. And fair enough, because like, TV's not really meant to, like, wind up. Yeah, it's kind of the antithesis of the genre is to actually have something that finishes like that. We we were talking about Lost recently and that incredible, um, you know, story behind how Lost was meant to go for, you know, they sort of did have a, a story arc for about three seasons and they were going to wrap it all up. But then it, because of its wild popularity, they had to just keep flogging that dead horse. And the thing is, it is TV. Like, that's actually how TV's supposed to operate. Like, TV's supposed to be an engine of just new episodes going until they don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, or until nobody's watching it anymore. Well, this would, is it. I would argue. I mean, that's what I mean by no one wants to do it anymore in that, you know, the money's drying up. <laughs> but yeah, so The Fugitive, wildly popular, 26 years after the TV show finished up, it becomes this big movie, it becomes an Academy Award-winning film. Uh, it was at least nominated. I don't know. I don't think it actually won any awards. Maybe Tommy Lee Jones scored a little gold man for it. Uh, I, should have I thought he up. got one for playing Two-Face in Batman something. Yeah, yeah. It was probably that. His his turn as <laughs> Harvey Dent's Two-Face in Batman Forever. Anyway, uh, basically the reason why the movie existed was, was nostalgia for the TV show. It drove interest in the film. And throughout sure. the story, it keeps it to a tight 130 minutes as opposed to 120 episodes of a, you know, 45 minutes TV show. Uh, this thing, you know, had Harrison Ford in it, Tommy Lee Jones, Joey Pants from The Sopranos, you know, uh, all-star cast. That ends amazing. up getting a spin-off film, uh, that was called US Marshals, but no one really remembers that. So we'll sort of push that to the side. But 27 years after the TV show, we now have this new series coming to a streaming service called Quibi. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about a Quibi show. 
Good so, old Quibi. So if you don't know Quibi, which I would dare imagine is probably most people at this point, uh, Quibi is a... Uh, basically, it's kind of like Netflix, but for your phone. So there's short content, so it's some scripted shows, there's some reality programs in there, there's some game shows. A lot of them are kind of ridiculous. A lot of the news programs that I've got there aren't very good. It's a real hodgepodge of not much that really sort of fires successfully. But also it's a brand new service and these things take some time to actually find what works on a platform. And for something like this where they're going, hey, look, let's make TV shows that work exclusively on your mobile phone with big budgets and big name talent behind it. I think it takes a little bit of time to like lock into exactly how that functions and what the audience is really going to connect to with that. Because it's not quite YouTube because that's all user generated content. So there's so much stuff out on YouTube. There's very little emphasis on this specific show needs to be a success. Whereas with Quibi, there's, you know, 30 to 40 shows of actual sort of notes running at any given time. And as I said, some of those are a mixture of reality and documentary and scripted. But like that's a much smaller pool of stuff that actually needs to fire off. And so it's, it's going to take some time. But now we've got most, the future dev on Quibi. The most confusing thing about Quibi to me is what how you feel about it on any given week because you have been lavishing Quibi with praise some weeks, rendering it as obsolete and unnecessary other weeks. You, you, you've been all over the place with this. So I would say my feelings on Quibi very much were it launched. We had three months of free Quibi. And right at the beginning, because I was super, I was Quibi skeptical, as most people were, <laughs> those who knew what Quibi was were by and large not... There was no faith that Quibi would actually be successful on any metric. So it launched and I started playing around with it. And for me, I locked into it saying, you know what, there's some potential here. I kind of like the idea of it. I like the serialized nature of the stories. The one I sort of latched into early in was this thing called Most Dangerous Game. And like, it's not great television by any means, but like it had sort of a fun serialized nature to it. And it was enough to pick, make me pick up my phone every day to see the next eight minute chapter of it. And I got a bit of a kick out of it. And with the cliffhanger, I'm like, oh, I've got to see what happens next. And then... The next installment comes along going, oh, that was kind of okay. Ooh, cliffhanger. Got to see what happens next. And it did what cliffhanger serialized storytelling is supposed to do. The thing is that Most Dangerous Game came and went, and then there just wasn't much after that. For three months, it sort of just coasted by on the couple of shows they launched with, and not much really followed. Now, obviously, they were trying to pace things out because the stupid virus hit. No one was subscribing to Quibi. Like, there was just a whole bunch of reasons why they're like, look, we don't want to put our best stuff out forward, you know, let's just, you know, ride yeah, out sure. the storm, see what we can do. But anyway, the three months came and went, and because I saw nothing coming through on Quibi, I'm like, well, this is a garbage service because they're not really actually delivering anything. And fair enough, because that's a garbage service. Yeah. However, in the last couple of days, something like radical has changed for us here in Australia. Quibi's now free. Ah, so free Quibi. Free Quibi. Hashtag free Quibi. So Quibi has gone from a service where they were expecting people to pay $12.99 a month and that's ad-free. There's still a paid version, which is $6.99 a month without ads. Or you can get it for free with ads for nothing. Zip. Zilch. What are the ads like? Are they inserted into the program or are they The ads are kind of like at the beginning of a YouTube clip. It's pre-roll ads, 15 seconds a piece. Uh, it's usually between zero to two ads that seem to play from the couple of videos I've watched since Quibi went free. Well, that seems reasonable. And this is 24 hours into free, so... You know, it's still early days. People have, been, um, people have been putting it up with putting up with it on YouTube for a long time. I'm sure that's not really a barrier. This is it. I would say that maybe 15 seconds is a little bit long for a Quibi ad. I think they should be trying to keep it as tight as possible, so it should be like an eight-second ad. Especially since it's 
the show the show lengths are quite short. That's exactly right? it. So if you're watching eight minutes and then it's chewed up with like a minute beforehand, it's like the frustration you feel on YouTube where you've just gone there to watch a movie trailer and that goes for like two and a half minutes, but you have to watch like 90 seconds of ads before it. <laughs> it's really painful. Yeah. No fun. No. So that you can get to that sweet advertising Absolutely. You've got to watch the not-so-sweet advertising You're content. there to watch an ad, and yet you have to watch like countless ads before you can get to the ad. It's outrageous. Anyway, okay, so how's this working? Are we getting cliffhangers at the... Um, is he almost catching the one-armed man in every Quibi installment? Okay, so or how's this you have working? just latched into exactly what I want to talk about here, which is that the Fugitive as a concept is a fantastic idea for Quibi. Like, it completely nails the brief entirely. It, the format, the the entire idea of the show, which was supposed to be the serialized thing where week in, week out, you know, it's about catching the one-armed man. Like, that's just, like, that's exactly what Quibi is. Like, it's serialized storytelling. You can tell immediately from that, there should be cliffhangers at the end of every episode. It should be exactly that. And the show is absolutely that, except there's one crucial ingredient missing. There's no one-armed man. In fact, there's no, really? there's no Richard Kimball. This is an entirely new story, just using the IP brand of The Fugitive to tell a story about another <laughs> similar type of story. So in this, you've got... Okay, and I just want to remind people of just the fact, this is 27 years after The Fugitive movie. Okay, and we're going to get to why that's important in just a second. Actually, no, we can sure. talk about that now. So I think the thinking that went into creating this is that they thought, it's been 27 years since the movie, no one really remembers what The Fugitive is anymore, so why don't we just do like a brand new story that has the same sort of idea of The Fugitive, but isn't The Fugitive, we can just do our own thing. And I kind of yeah. get that as a creative impulse, but I'm going to get to why that's the wrong idea in just a moment. The thing to keep in mind is that, yes, it's been 27 years, and yes, executive at Quibi, or yes, 24-year-old uh, production person who's in the era of the people greenlighting shows at Quibi, like, you may not necessarily have heard of The Fugitive <laughs> before, but the thing is that I guarantee you that most of the audience for Quibi, which is like 16 to 35-year-olds, that's kind of the sweet spot for Quibi. So, most of those people have grown up with The Fugitive on DVD because their Gen X or Boomer parents have no doubt enjoyed The Fugitive over the years. So, it's been something that's been in people's households. They've certainly seen The Fugitive probably countless times with their parents and just being played on TV and just generally just around. People between 16 to 35 have seen The Fugitive before. They're not unfamiliar with it. But in the same way I that agree. it was 26 years between the TV shows and the movie and there was a bit of nostalgia for it, but that's long enough for you to say, hey, look, let's just do a bit of a modern take on it. It's now 27 years after the 1993 film. The world's changed a lot since then, but the idea of The Fugitive is still something that actually holds together quite well. But wouldn't you like to see a version of the Richard Kimball story that has Richard Kimball on the run from the police, but trying to navigate like sophisticated modern surveillance systems, dealing with social media, dealing with all the things that actually exist here in 2020? And keep in mind, this is a service that operates on your mobile phone. Like, isn't that perfect in every possible way? But that is not what they do here. I could write a whole... I could write a whole eight-minute episode about just trying to get your Facebook privacy settings <laughs> right so that only your close friends see your posts and not the FBI. Exactly, and the thrills, the chilling nature of that story. It's all there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. That would be a particularly good one. Okay, so... Um, oh, this is crazy. So we, we're seeing a pattern of this, right? Last week we had... A couple of weeks ago you were talking about the um, courtroom drama Perry Mason. Yeah which was, is, is a completely rebranded or a completely like new story with just this vague idea that the character is Perry Mason. 
Well, it's really nothing other than Now, that. I should say, later in the first season, he is definitely working as a lawyer and that sort of come about, but it took a bit of heft to get there. Yeah, right. And then um, it, it's just interesting that you would then, you know, we're counting on this, we're relying on this IP to be familiar enough that people want to check it out based on a memory of it. Otherwise, there's no point using the IP. But then completely removing everything about it that people were familiar with and liked is a very strange decision. Absolutely. So let me tell you what it is, okay? And just keep in mind, Perry Mason, which you talked about, as I said on the show, it was a really good show. Like, it was, like, but the thing is, it could have been yeah. any show. So, I mean, it could have just as well have been, like, a modern-day take on The Long Goodbye or some other sort of gumshoe detective show. Like, it made no sense that it was necessarily the Perry Mason lawyer show, but as a gumshoe detective, it was all a bit weird. This actually fits a little bit better. So, The Quibby Fugitive, it's about a guy who's six months out of jail. He's trying to get his life started again. Uh, in episode one, he's lost his job because uh, a customer, like at his workplace, uh, discovers that he's a former convict. So, he's immediately turfed out, which I found strange just based on one customer complaint that this guy would lose his job because the boss surely knew that this guy had formerly been in prison. Very odd. Anyway... Loses his job, but we know he's a really great guy because this parole officer in the next scene pretty much tells him so. There's a scene just a few minutes later, and bear in mind it's Quibi, so all episodes are eight minutes. So very shortly afterwards, you see him again with this parole officer. They're at a train station, they have a bit of a chat. Parole officer gets on the train, train leaves the station, our hero, he's walking out of the train, and then suddenly there's an explosion, takes out the train station. This guy is uh, pinned as the guy responsible for blowing up the train, goes on the run, Police officer tries to track him down, much like the standard fugitive template. Uh, the two actors involved here, it's really a bit of a two-hander. Uh, so you've got the gentleman from the Narco show from Netflix, uh, Boyd Holbrook. And he's... Oh, yeah? I don't find him particularly that charismatic. Like, he's okay. He's fine. Uh, but the other actor in it is the one that's actually kind of exciting. One Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, Kiefer. Kiefer. And he... Glad to have you back, He Kiefer. plays Detective Clay Bryce. What a great name. He would have to be the cop. Uh, back, 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 back up a bit. Why did they think this dude blew up the I train? know, presumably that happens in episode two, and I haven't watched that yet. But I'm getting to that. <laughs> right. Bear in mind, it debuted just a couple of days ago, and Quibi only became free for us in the last 24 hours, so... Uh, I'm, I'm casting no aspersions. Yeah. Uh, it just seemed like an, an odd thing for somebody at a train platform to be charged with. But uh, yes, obviously, there will be... The train blew up. He's a former crim, you know. Just... <laughs> paint, paint the numbers like it's clearly there <laughs> yeah so uh the thing when watching it is that the first thing i thought about while i was watching it is this feels just like the most dangerous game and the reason for that is that it's the same writer that's done both of them and it right. seems strange to me that you'd have two flagship shows just like three months apart that are from the same creative like voice a little bit of an odd choice and I have to say... There's a lot of odd decisions happening at this place. And, like, the writing on it, like, it's not, like, there's not really that much going on. Like, it's all very sort of quick, rapid fire. And bear in mind, it's eight-minute episodes, so I kind of understand why it is the way that it is. But, yeah, like, I didn't really feel that I saw anything more than just a surface attempt to say, hey, look, you're a good guy. You're an ex-criminal. And then it's just exposition dump for the first eight minutes, and then a train blows up. <laughs> and that's fine. I get it's kind of a form, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland's kind of a bit interesting. He doesn't appear in the first episode, but I've seen clips from later episodes, so, you know, I see that he's going to be more prominent through it. And also, I'm familiar with The Fugitive as a concept, so I know exactly where this is going. Uh, it's directed by Stephen Hopkins. That's kind of interesting, because Stephen Hopkins, he's this Australian director. 
He's done a whole bunch of interesting stuff. Uh, he worked on The Highlander, like, you know, the great film from 1986. Wasn't the director of that. The original film. Yeah, he was like a, <clears throat> I, I can't remember what he was, his like first unit director or something. The best boy. Yeah, he, was, he was the best boy. In many ways, he's always been the best boy in my eyes. Yeah. But Stephen Hopkins is notable for directing the pilot episode of 24 and setting the visual template for that program. And 24 is an incredibly stylish show. There's a lot of really um, iconic sort of visual elements brought into that program. Sure. And it was unlike anything really on TV at that point. So, like, you know, I don't think you can dismiss Stephen Hopkins as a bit of a visionary director in this sort of a genre. And, like, this looks gorgeous. Like, it's a good-looking program. But yeah, like I just get stuck on the idea that I don't get who this is for. Because you've got an intended audience who should be fine with it being a contemporary remake. Because as I said, like there's 2020 reasons to tell the fugitive story again. And it's been long enough that I don't think people would be that bothered. It's not like, say, in the early 2000s when they made a Spider-Man origin story like about six years after that already had a previous Spider-Man origin story movie. Yeah, like, yeah. It's not like that. It's been 27 years. Like that's enough time to let that sort of thing slide by. I would agree, yes. Yeah. And sure. like the idea of the storyline for this is perfectly fine, but surely this is what you do in season two when you've already resolved in season one the Richard Kimball story, but you want to bring Kiefer back for a second season so you have him chasing a different dude. And this is what you do in season two. Very strange, Chris. It all makes sense, Dan. Why didn't they call you and ask you about what they should do? That's what I Look, I'm just sitting here. <laughs> waiting for that phone I'm, to ring. For the I'm waiting guns. for the phone to ring. I'm waiting for my next Quibi adventure. What's Quibi got coming up? Is there other things on Quibi that I should even bother to download this free Quibi app? For? Look, uh, this look. I would say download and take a bit of a thumb through because there's kind of some fun things to waste a bit of time with, but nothing's really been a slam dunk yet. Uh, like as I said, most yeah. dangerous game. Like I think that's kind of fun, but I, I also wonder because I watch that as the episodes are being released day to day. I wonder what it's like when you've got all fourteen or sixteen episodes or whatever it is just sitting there waiting to go. Like how engaging is that? I don't know. Yeah, would you just would you just churn through them, or would you be like, "Oh, wait till next time I need to do a yeah. poo, and I'll watch that on the toilet." No, that's I mean, that's pretty much the audience. <laughs> Quibi is poo television. Um, uh, and can I cast Quibi to my television? I think I've asked you. You can before. now. Can I send it? Oh yeah. See, so that's I know that, that you at the time when I asked you that originally, you said it was a ridiculous question and that I should just give up on life altogether for asking it. It was something something along those lines. Look, I'm, I may have said that to you but, for um, a number of reasons. <laughs> it might not have been that. That's right. No, no, no. no. It was basically else. that Quibi said, no, nah, everything's just pure mobile phone. And then everyone complained about it on day one. And they're like, oh, no, it was always part of the roadmap. And then they rolled it out like yeah. two months later. <laughs> Because it makes sense. I mean, I, you know, I get them wanting to do that on there, but still, you know, like, and I like watching YouTube garbage on my phone as well. But if I'm sitting on my couch in my lounge room and I've got a massive screen in front of me, to, to be able to not send it to there seems pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's 2020. You want the option. Come on, 2020. Yeah. I've got nothing else going on. We're not commuting anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. Anyway, the <laughs> overall thought I have is, look, if you're in Australia, definitely download Quibi. Give the show a bit of a look because it's fun enough especially if it's free. If you're paying like $6.99 Canadian, which I notice is a price that some people are paying in Canada, <laughs> like maybe don't do that. If you're paying, I think it's $4.99 in the US, like, you know, $4.99 still seems a bit much That's for this. That's maybe but a bit reasonable. Right. Yeah. Are there any cartoons out there? I don't think there's any animation there yet, but I wouldn't be surprised to see something happen soon. Keep in mind as well that 
it's not aimed at like a family audience. So any sort of cartoons on there would be very much of your like adults, like adult swim sort of level cartoons if they do this it. This is what I was. But yeah, I'm surprised. This is what I was hoping. I'm surprised for. there isn't animation on it. To be honest. Yeah, it's always a great little, even, you know, not just for kids, but it's a nice little format to have a little, uh, you know, it's a good way to have an animated series, a nice little short chunks. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see it coming. Sorry, I just had a thought, a show that you'd be very much keen on, and I don't have the name of it in front of me, but there's a series with Adam Devine on it, and I think it's... Oh, get it's, out. It's like 10 episodes or whatever, and every episode he has a celebrity friend, and the two of them go and do something dangerous together. Bad ideas with Adam Devine. <laughs> this sounds very good. All right, I'm gonna definitely download it. Yeah, I knew there was a Chris Yates show in there with... somewhere. <laughs> you second me yeah. with all that. Um, after the podcast, I'll run through some of the other shows that I'm pretty sure you'll be into. But that's neither here nor there. Because what we want to hear about Chris is something which I have almost no idea about. Did not even know this existed until you mentioned it to me just a few minutes ago, pre-podcast. But there's a movie by David Byrne from The Talking Heads. And let's listen to a clip, and then we'll come into it. Since this mall opened, C.R. Anthony, J.C. Penney, and even Duke and Ayers have all pulled out of downtown Virgil. Shoppers here will go wherever the bargains are, wherever it's convenient to shop. They don't care if they shop in a funky old building downtown or in a clean, modern place like this. See, they're wise to advertisers' claims. In a place like this, they can comparison shop. Everybody could hardly wait until the mall opened. Said Margie Ortiz. I go there just about every weekend. So the two of the other girls from work. See? I told you. Okay, Chris, what the hell is this? This film is incredible. So the reason I go... Um, there's a few, few things to set this up. Um, talking Heads... I've been on the news a little bit again lately. Um, Chris France, the drummer of Talking Heads, has written a tell-all biography, which... Um, uh, has a lot of uh, stories about how David Byrne is a very not nice guy, um, at least wasn't during those times. And you know, they're the they're the original holdout. It's kind of like the Talking Heads and the Talking Heads and the Smiths are the two bands that uh, will never reform. And despite uh, how many millions and millions of dollars have been thrown at them over the years, tempting them to do exactly that. And even after this sort of last ten year era, where every single band that was never going to reform uh reformed and played shows um yeah talking heads are just never going to do it and there's you know there's always been a bit of uh talk about how burn elevated himself over the rest of the band who were all very incredible players and big contributors um he took a lot of the writing credits for the songs himself despite them being you know jammed out musical uh excursions and um chris france and um, Tina Weymouth, of course, had another band called Tom Tom Club, which proved the kind of grooves and stuff that they were capable of and how much of an influence that played on the band. There's, there's all this kind of weird stuff. So it was interesting to see David Byrne pop up in the news there again. He's also been in the news recently because he started a website, Reasons to be Cheerful by David Byrne. So this was this um, website where he, instead of just putting in, um, you know, it, as a way to combat the kind of negativity that we were all being bombarded with, this was pre-COVID, so he might have less reasons. Uh, Pre-Jim from The Office doing the exact same thing on YouTube. <laughs> you know, but we can't, we'll, we will never diss an Office Jim for stealing the exact same idea. And it was more of a curated um, experience. It wasn't like David Byrne hosting a show or anything. It was just, he was really just um, had a team that were looking for uh, interesting stories, positive stories about the environment, positive stories about social issues that could at least provide some relief to the 
onslaught of horrible news we get all the time. Um, when lockdown first started, um, and a lot of people started posting about things that they were watching, and I, I've talked to you about it a lot of, you know, people revisiting stuff that was really big for them when they were young. And I kind of really was paying attention to what a lot of people were posting there. And our mutual friend of ours, Trevor Ludlow, um, the mu musician Trevor Ludlow, who, you know, has been a big influence on you and I both, Dan, I'm sure you would spiritually. agree. Spiritually. Um, spiritually and otherwise he posted this you know uh this is one of my favorite ever movies if anyone hasn't seen it check it out and i've got a lot of respect for um trev and his taste in things so i instantly went like why the hell haven't i seen this um trevor himself actually has a really lovely story about running into david byrne uh in melbourne or somewhere i think and maybe it was overseas but you know he's got this reputation as a really prickly guy and um, so Trev thought, what the hell, Trev being Trev. Trev being one of the nicest, most lovely people on the planet. <laughs> and, and sort of like without, he's almost fearless in his charming, uh, uh, in his, with his boyish Sorry, charm. We should, we should talk about who Trev Ludlow is, because if we're going to talk about it in a story, he actually, he's the sort of person that might encounter like a David Byrne in life. Trevor Ludlow, he's a musician, like associated like some Brisbane for like a whole bunch of years these days in Melbourne. But if you think about like the sort of who's who of like Brisbane bands back in the day, Ludlow's has got an association with them. Uh, I know him probably being like from the uh, from the band Channel Band and his sensitive side. Uh, but like he's got a few like sort of custard songs under his belt, and there's you know. He co-wrote the most popular custard song, Girls yeah. Like That Don't Go For Guys Like Us. Not that he uh, would, would want us tweeting his horn. No, he'd way. be embarrassed that the very idea would, would be talking it. about this. <laughs> Three beers in it, he'll tell everybody. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, so I mean, he, he's, I mean, he's got insane, yeah, incredible taste in films, incredible taste in music. So I was just like, instantly, I want to check it out. But yeah, he had a really lovely story about running into David Byrne and him being very charming and having a big chat with him when, you know, it, it, he kind of went up to him expecting to be brushed off and was quite surprised by that. Uh, so when, um, you know, this was one of those things that uh, when Trev posted it, I was like, oh God, I remember that. Probably only the last 10 years or so, I've really given Talking Heads their time uh, that they deserved and really started to delve back into the catalogue and especially watch the film Stop Making Sense. So they did this film Stop Making Sense, which was a video of the concert tour um, of, of, or of one show, I should say, that was produced um, by, that was directed by, God, one of the Dem brothers, Jonathan Dem or Ted Dem? Who oh, it would be Jonathan, I reckon. And um, it was, you know, just got to be, they were a very, very popular band at the time. They started in the New York kind of CBGB's punk rock, post-punk scene. But then it became kind of mainstream in that weird MTV era where like a lot of good bands, um, a lot of actual good bands became actually popular. So they, they were massive at this point. They, you know, they were particularly, another one of those bands that were particularly big in Australia. So you can always sort of, They've always been a bit uh, bigger here, I think, in the landscape than what they've been overseas. So, yeah. Um, yeah, Jonathan Dem was the director of this incredible film, Stop Making Sense, which is basically a concert, but it's done in this uh, really interesting way where the set pieces are, are very interesting, where the songs are performed in these kind of stripped back ways and then in over, you know, with really big over-the-top productions in, in, as well, all mashed together. The, the sort of the way they move the set pieces around a part of the film like the the actual stage becomes a part like a character almost it's fantastic fantastic stuff and um 
it it was a massive hit. Um, I'm just I'm just seeing here. It was a you know million dollar budget, five million dollars it took in the box office. But then it just kept going and going, and it was it was wildly popular for but years. Keeping in mind as well, like on... this is a band which were hugely well known from MTV at the time. This is early to mid '80s, so you know the idea of seeing an MTV yeah. movie in a cinema is something a bit more sort of a draw card than you'd find probably even like five years after that. Absolutely, or five years before, like, exactly, and especially something where it wasn't like a legacy band as much. Like they were still a pretty new band then, and they weren't, you know, it wasn't like watching a, ba- a movie about Bob Dylan or something like that. So, on the strength and the success of this, David Byrne, the artist that he is, decided he wanted to make his own film. So he kind of took this idea um, to uh, Warner Brothers, I think it was, who I think, I don't even know if they did have anything to do with the original one, but um, basically based on his appeal and how big that film was and the fact that it was going to include the music of Talking Heads, uh, they greenlit it and gave him, you know, one of these weird things where he got basically complete creative control, which is the thing that used to happen back in those days. Nobody regretted this at all. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't know if this was, I don't know if it was quite as, I don't know if it was quite as successful. It definitely wasn't quite as success- successful as Stop Making Sense, mainly because it's so damn weird. The line here from Wikipedia was, True Stories was not a commercial success at the time of its release. Yeah. It's very, very, very strange film. So it basically, um, David Byrne does a lot. Of, he's the narrator. He's in the film. He's mugging it up. He's traveling through the Midwest, uh, or Texas, actually, um, a fictional town of uh, called Virgil, uh, which is um, obviously based on all the little small towns in Texas. But it's this kind of incredible forward, forward-looking. Um, it, it, it's looking at the way America sort of saw itself in the future, based in the 1980s, in this very strange way. So it's fighting this very. It's it's these two elements of small town America where there's a um, corporation in town called Vericorp, and they are creating silicon chips. And David Byrne is was you know really into technology and he's kind of talking about how these things called computers have come along and they're about to change the whole world you got no idea how it's going to happen and he does this kind of really goofy voice about it um there's a lot of uh you know it almost it almost drops into documentary for these bits where they're looking at how the actual silicon chips are getting made there's talk about silicon valley there's talk about how this kind of idea is going to become the new you know how computers are going to be the future like really forward thinking stuff and how that affects the the other sort of industries in this small town, like say how that's going to have an effect on farming and how that's going to have an effect on the automotive industry. And it's done in this way where it's told through the story of John Goodman, who works in the Silicon chip factory and is uh, looking for love. So he's a, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a quite well off, country western music fan who's got this nice job and all he wants to do is find love so he's taking out ads on the te- on his local television station he's putting up billboards doing all this kind of stuff splashing a bit around he loves to dance he loves to go out and party and so interviews with david byrne interviews between david byrne as the narrator and john goodman as well as watching john goodman in these little scenes thread this whole pseudo documentary about texas life into a film that actually makes sense. The musical performances aren't a massive part of the aren't a massive part of the film. Certainly nowhere near to the extent of Stop Making Sense, which is a concert film. And I think that's probably what people were expecting when they went into it. And I'm sure that's why it wasn't very popular. But they are. Um, but there is a couple of fantastic moments. So you might remember the video clip for Wild Wildlife, which features a whole bunch of people um, 
miming the song, doing a line each kind of thing, jumping up on stage, which is kind of the centerpiece, I guess, of the film. And it's um, like, it gives me goosebumps watching it, but it's just so well done where it, it pulls, kind of puts the attention on the most uh, popular song and the, and the most accessible song on Stop Make, on um, True Stories, the album, and then sets the whole film up around it. It's, it's hard to talk about, it's, it's really hard to talk about this film as a thing because there's really nothing else like it. It, it looks heaps like the cinematography is beautiful. It reminds me of like, um, you know, my own private Idaho with all the big kind of sprawling landscapes. And it's, and it reminds me a little bit of, um, there's a lot of symmetry, like um, what's his face uh, that makes all those you want to say Wes Anderson. movies that everyone loves. <laughs> yeah. Wes Anderson. That's him. It's got all these great little quirky, uh, you know, points of reference to no, it. Look, when, when I was watching it's this, because I've literally stuff. only seen like a couple of scenes, which is the vignette where he goes to a shopping center. And in much the same way you're talking about the idea that this is very much looking to the future, you look at this clip at the shopping center, at, uh, at the mall. Sorry, to use the American term. So he's gone to the mall. Yeah, yeah. At this time, because like the film came out in 86, the idea of the mall is really new to the US. Like it's like, you know... 10, 15 years that malls had kind of been around and getting to the size that they kind of exploded across the US with throughout the early 80s. So at the same time that you've got the rise of Talking Heads as a result of the rise of MTV, you've also got two other things happening. You've got the rise of mall-based retail, and then also you've got the rise yeah. of Silicon Valley and these computer companies, which is going to feed into the next thing we're talking about, Holes and Catch Fire. This is a very connected episode of Always Be Watching. We're segueing it all. We really are. But you watch this vignette, um, and it's basically him explaining how the retail experience of a mall works, and the idea. And I don't know if it was in that blurb that we heard a moment ago, or if it's like directly after that. But he just talks about the idea that previously, when you go to the shops, if you went to a department store or whatever, you just go to that one store, and so it doesn't really matter what a thing costs. You just went and bought it. But the appeal of the mall beyond the culture and society that a mall sort of um, engenders is that from a retail experience, you can go to a couple of stores and you can price match and get the best deal for yourself. So it gives you like an element more of choice as a consumer. And so he was looking at malls not necessarily from a thing of, oh, isn't this just like a horribly oppressive, like capitalist sort of enterprise, but really he was looking at it culturally and what it all represents. And at one point he bumps into the John Goodman character, but he also comes across this other guy who, and I don't know if he features in other parts of the film, but it's a guy who's carrying like all of this computer equipment that he's just purchased at the mall. And he's just talking about how he's about, has to go back to work because he's got, I forget what it was, he's got to do some sort of other work. But it just taps into this idea that if the rest of the film is about looking forward and what is happening sort of in the future, this was very much like, this is the modern day embodiment of what the future is. Everything we've been walk, working towards is all encapsulated within the mall. Absolutely. And then, and, and it's really fascinating. Like that is the character that that character in the, that he runs into in the mall. Yeah. Shows him around the, um, the microchip processing plan in the beginning of the film. So he's has a nice little backwards and forwards with him, which is almost documentary style. The way it keeps switching is so good, but yeah, the way you describe there, how he talks about the mall experience is very much how he looks at everything. Like he's not, there's no judgment. There's no kind of like, this is bad that this is happening in America or this is good as that this is happening in America. It's so observant. Like it's just literally 
this weird narration of like, these are all the things that are happening right now in America. And this is what I think is going to happen in the future. And it's this weird optimism. It's amazing. Well, I think it was an optimism that existed in the early to mid eighties that you just didn't find 10 years later as we're all gloomy looking at our sneakers as part of the grunge movement onwards. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's obviously a big part of that sort of almost foolish optimism in, in, I think David Byrne's music, but then more in, you know, and then that ties us back to the kind of, um, the good news website idea and that, you know, he does seem to have this weird sort of sense of, even though he's very aware of everything that's wrong and everything that's going wrong with the world, that there is still this kind of like idea that things are going to get better in the end, which is a nice, which is nice if foolhardy at this point. Yeah. David Byrne, what a terrible sounding man. Check it out, Dan. <laughs> you would, I, I specifically wanted to talk about this because I knew you would like it really. And I, and, and just really jogged it for me and a lot of other people too, but you know, any kind of, I, any, any kind of interest in um, music film, film, music films, films about popular music that are done interestingly, or uh, even just that sort of very um, obs observational look at American life or society in the 80s especially is just going to be, you're going to find a lot to like about this movie. Yeah, look, I mean, I will say that from the very small clip that I like watched earlier to get the audio clip for you, like I was looking at it and the sort of starkness of the way that Texas was shot, it really sort of feels like the sort of indie film movement that started kicking off from the late 80s going into the 90s as you started seeing, totally. uh, like I sort of think about like films like say Paris, Texas and all those yeah. other films that play around like that stark sort of background which was kind of the hallmark of indie films until they all started moving to new yeah. york city and then they were all about new york <laughs> writers who were struggling <laughs> with their problems because to me that's what indie films yeah. are really about but yeah like the late 80s was very much about texas and yeah, yeah totally and there's um, very comfortable uh, there. i managed to find like a i managed to find a criteria it's a you know it came out on the criterion collection blu-ray so there's really beautiful it's a really beautiful print you can watch of it and it's like vibrant color and great sound and yeah yeah it's great. Let's talk about Holt and Catch Fire. Look, I'm very excited to talk about that. Let's listen to a clip. Hey, where is it? Where's what? The binder, the bios. Did you give it to IBM? What am I really here for, huh? What, four or five weeks as long as it takes to write it, right? Then what? I'm gone? What? N no. No, no, no. Who told you that? Portability. People need to be able to take it anywhere. It's going to have a handle. A handle? Oh my God, Joe, I gotta give it to you. This, this changes everything. A handle? What a revolutionary idea. So it's still a piece of shit copy of a boring box. Joe, she gave the binder to IBM. You, you did what? I never said I gave the binder to IBM. Okay, then where is it? What does it matter? You were going to fire me after the BIOS anyway. Yeah, can you blame us? Oh, so it's true. Fantastic. Not to worry, IBM offered me a job, triple the salary. Excellent, so. excellent. It's a great place to work. I could write you a recommendation. Would That's you? right. That's right. You used to work at IBM. That was before you came here and ruined several people's lives and entire company. You were boozing that building, and your balls were in a box by your wife's bedside table. Okay, so weirdly, that clip actually sums up everything that's going on in the first sort of era of this program. Now, Chris, I'm assuming that you haven't seen Holson Catch Fire before? 
You would be incorrect, oh, really? Dan. I watched the whole first season of Hulk and Catch Fire. Okay, well... I'm trying... It was a few years ago, right? Um, yeah, so I think it finished up maybe two years ago. So I'm going to say maybe it started in, like, 2014-15. Yeah, so I watched that whole first season, and for some reason, something about it was irking me by the end of the season, and I gave up. I can't exactly recall Okay, why. well, let me get through my pre-prepared spiel about this, and then we can talk about what may have irked you about it, because I totally understand why yeah, you might sure. have gotten a bit irked with it. Okay, so Hold and Catch Fire, it's a show where, the, when you hear the premise of it, it sounds a little bit dull. And frankly, while the first few episodes are perfectly watchable, I think, it takes a bit of time for the show to really figure out what makes it a fun show to watch. And I could imagine while you're watching that first season, if you didn't quite latch into exactly what they started to do with it right at the end of the season, you might be ready to write it off and you may not have come back for that second season. And based on the ratings for the show, I feel that a lot of viewers definitely followed your life cycle with it. But then... <laughs> I might not have even made it to the end of the first season, to be honest. So maybe I, yeah, maybe I dropped off before okay, that, started. That actually makes a bit of sense to me. So the premise of the show is this. It's 1983. So in the same way we just talk about like a 1986 film talking about the mall and technology sort of rise, this is a mm. show that's legitimately about like the rise, well, the very early phases of a personal computer. So it's 1983, Cardiff Electric's the company in Texas, and they're making mainframe computers. It's like the big computers that power offices and it's very much a corporate sort of a business. So they're very much like a business-to-business -business kind of a company. Uh, Joe, Joe McMillan, he's a former IBM staffer, and as you find out, his dad's actually like a big wig at IBM. And so he kind of went through the ranks at IBM much more easily than most. Uh, but he's got a lot of psycho uh, psychological baggage that comes with him as well. Uh, he's rocked up at this company, Cardiff Electric, and he's convinced the management team there that they should start working on reverse engineering an IBM PC, making it much smaller and selling it to the home market. So this is a company which will never be the company that everyone remembers, but really that's making clones of other computers and making a decent profit off the top of that. And if you think about like electronics, like there's always like also run companies that kind of seems to just be in stores everywhere and they just keep on chugging along and that's turning a very tidy profit, but they're never the ones that are like revolutionizing the industry. And this is a company that... Sony televisions, for example. Yeah. But, uh, well, if you think about... Um, like, you know, they're not necessarily Sony or Samsung, but maybe a brand like TIAC would probably be the yeah, way yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, uh, phrase sure. it. Okay, so they want to reverse engineer an IBM PC. And the first season is very much about the reverse engineering of a computer. And if that doesn't sound like an exciting TV show, I don't know what does. <laughs> uh, but in order to do that, uh, this guy, Joe McMillan, he ends up bringing on board a, uh, like a whiz kid college student that he comes across named Cameron, uh, played by Mackenzie Davis. And you may have seen her around the place in a bunch of movies and TV shows in the last few years. She's proven to be very popular. Uh, there's also a depressed engineer who's working at uh, Cardiff Electric named Gordon. And the three of them, they kind of hate each other at first. Even though Joe's sleeping with uh, Cameron, they still kind of hate each other. And through the first five or so episodes, like, it kind of is leading up to that scene that we just heard the audio from. So they're just kind of really tense and no one's really getting along and everyone's like bringing their own sort of baggage to the project. Cameron's got insecurities. Uh, Joe's got other stuff going on that you don't quite know entirely about at that point. Although just after that clip we heard from, he reveals a little bit of himself. But also when he reveals a bit of himself, you don't actually quite know if he's telling the truth. In a way, he's kind of like the character of the Joker from The Dark Knight in that he tells his origin story about three different ways through the uh, film. Uh, but essentially what you've got is the Joe character and this is definitely true for the first season of the show it's kind of like the, uh, trying to be like a madman 2.0 and 
And so it's kind of a show about a difficult man who's sort of interrupts in the lives of others with his genius. And you watch it and you kind of feel like you're not really experiencing anything new. But then the show clicks into place. And this is where it gets a bit more exciting. So the show starts zeroing in. This is the part that you won't have really seen. It starts doing it right at the end of the first season. But it realizes that the interesting character isn't really the troubled genius Joe, but really it's the two women on the show. So Cameron, who's this whiz kid college student who knows her way around creating software, and she really wants to give this software she's creating personality and actual sort of flavor and vibrancy. And then you've got Gordon's wife, Donna, who's also formerly sort of from the computer industry. She's a bit of a nerd herself, but she's sort of resigned herself to settling in the suburbs and raising a family and just supporting her husband through work that he's clearly not that into and she's not really into her day job either, but they're just kind of going through the motions. But then they bring Donna into it and you start seeing sparks of life from Donna when she starts doing more interesting things with the computer company, like just keeps on falling into Gordon's world a little bit. And she kind of comes alive a bit. And by the end of the first season, Cameron and Donna have gone off and started their own company. So what the show becomes then is actually about like the early era of personal computing going from just being a box to kind of what we know it to be now. So the company that they go off to form starts as like an online games company. And this is like in 1985-86. So if you think about Matthew Broderick in War Games, you know how he's like working with a modem and he's able to transmit small bits of data? Like it's kind of that. So like there's a company they set up where they're charging a subscription for text-based games that they're sending across a very, um, you know, early era modem internet sort of a network. Yeah, yeah. So they're doing that. And then they realize that the games aren't necessarily what people are excited about when they're subscribing, but really it's about the chats that are happening around the games. So they pivot their company to be a social network of sorts based around games of people just chatting online. And that's kind of what the show is actually really about. Covertly, by the time that you reach like this early era stage of season two, you realize the show is actually about characters learning how to communicate with each other and how once computers have entered our lives as a broader culture, as soon as that happens, it actually allows people to express themselves a little bit more and be more truthful about who they are. Joe starts coming out as a bisexual man. Uh, Cameron just takes a lot more authority of um, her life. Like she's someone who's been sort of put upon for her entire life, but now she actually has the standing to be able to, you know, stand up and prove that she's viable and talented and being able to get out there. Donna's in a very similar position where she'd resigned herself to be a housewife, but once she's actually given the opportunity to like show her business acumen, like suddenly there's an opportunity for her to sort of come out. And then Gordon's trying to work out what his role is in life because he sort of made a lot of money from the IBM uh, clone that he'd created like back at Cardiff Electric. But like, what's the next stage of his life while his wife's going off becoming a successful businesswoman? Like, what does he do? And so you kind of see these characters sort of reaching out and stretching and trying to work out who they are while also coming to terms with who they are themselves because they don't really quite know. And it's a really interesting show. Uh, over four seasons, uh, viewership just dropped off season after season. But people have discovered the show since. People are obsessed with this program. People are gaga for yeah, Holes right. and Catch Fire, Chris. How did that happen? Like, people just stumbled across it and just pure word of mouth. It's never quite been as successful as, like, Freaks and Geeks as a word of mouth success story. But, like, it's kind of bubbling away. And even if you jumped on board with it now, I guarantee that the peak for Holes and Catch Fire hasn't quite come about yet. Because it's a show that was very much looking forward. Like, it's kind of discussing all the things that we're sort of interested in culturally right now. And will probably become more so over the next two or three years. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I think I might, uh, yeah, I might even take you up on that and jump in at season two. I, I can do without the kind of catch up. Yeah, the, the, my main memory of it is like angry men. You know what? I, I would actually recommend jump in halfway into season yeah. one. 
and go forward from there. Because there's a lot of fun stuff that happens at the end of the first season that actually pays off quite nicely. In yeah, it's so seasons. funny that you said it pivots to those female characters. Yeah, because the main thing I remember about it is just like angry men and her getting shot on. So that's a good, that's, I, I guess, the setup for that. But very interesting. Which I will say, that was my memory of the show. But when I went back and rewatched it over the last few weeks, she's actually got a lot more agency from the beginning than I think was really readily apparent. Yeah, right. And it was probably a bit more sort of foresight knowing where the show's going that I could kind of see that within the character. So. so have you, you know, watched it's still it worthwhile now? watching. Uh, I've only gotten halfway to season two, but I'll definitely be finishing it out in the next couple of weeks. And is there any plans to have? The, is there a change.org petition to um, uh, make more seasons or a movie or some horrible thing to keep it going? Look, there very well maybe, but all the showrunners have gone on to other bigger things. And uh, as I told about earlier, like Mackenzie uh, Davis, she's become like a fairly big star now. She was the Terminator in the most recent Terminator movies. And, yeah, you know. that. she did some great stuff. She was in the San Judipiro episode of Black Mirror, which is one of my favorites yeah. about the other people living in the, which was, which is one that's definitely going to come true in the not too distant future. <laughs> so very interesting. Um, and like Lee Pace, who people have seen under a huge amount of makeup in the Marvel films, like he's in there playing the Joe character. Scoot McNary's a dude who crops up in almost every TV show and movie right now. Like these are all actors who are going off to do some fairly big things. So Holston Catch Fire is well and truly just a happy memory in the past for, I think, everyone involved. We're going to have to um, wrap up soon, uh, but I thought there would probably be a clever way we could segue into the other couple of things that you mentioned you wanted to Okay, so I just about. want to very quickly just talk about the collapsing of movies into TV and vice versa. So to give a entry point into this, the other day I was involved in this conversation on the internet, you may have heard of it before, mm-hmm. and I was engaging with this guy named Chris Yates, and he's like, I want to see the movie Baby's Heath, how do I do that? And I said... It's playing in a cinema. That's how you do that. And Chris did not care for that answer. <laughs> um, and just to shout out, like, there was a really great review for it in the uh, excellent website, The Curb. Um, is, is it a Perth-based website? I'm sure we've Perth-based site. Yeah, with, which, you know, I regularly check out all the stuff. And they had a really great, uh, really great review for it and a really great clip. And it got me interested in watching an Australian movie for the first time in maybe like oh, 12 years. Yeah, and apparently it is quite good. But you asked that question, I told you, it's playing in a cinema, and I was just being a bit smug when I wrote that and sent it to you via text the other day. Oh, I couldn't tell. And it was, it was a conversation that stuck with me a bit, because it sort of tapped into a lot of things that are going on within movies right now. So within the movie industry, you've got a situation where all the movie studios are kind of freaking out, because they see what's happening five to ten years from now, and they don't want to be stuck in the current situation they're in, which is that they're locked into theatrical distribution as the main way that they make money for a movie. Yeah. So if you think about it now, let's say that you're Disney, you are making a huge amount of money off your Marvel movies, they go play in a cinema for a couple of months, and then they go to home video, you make a bit more money there, and then they go off to streaming. Now you've got Disney Plus as being the main way that that's streaming, but it'll also appear on other streaming services and still appear on TV around the place. There's revenue that just keeps on coming through for these movies. Mm. But cut to five to ten years from now, that's not necessarily going to be the case, because you've got two things that are happening. One, you've got companies like Netflix and Amazon Prime where they've entered the marketplace and they're like, hey, look, we're not really going to send our movies to cinemas. Sure, we can have like a deal where they can play in movies, but no one really goes to watch them that way. Rather, these movies just playing on people's lounge rooms. People aren't leaving the house for it. And sure, they're not necessarily seeing the huge budget sort of Marvel level 150 million plus like movies. Those aren't really the deal, but those mid-tier movies 
that we used to go and see that we've talked about a lot on this podcast the last couple of weeks, but all the stuff that we kind of have a bit of passion for are films that were kind of from this mid-tier level. So when I think about the movies that I'm excited about seeing this year, it's things that are appearing on Netflix. So the two films I'm most excited by is the new David Fincher film called Mank, which is a film about Herman Mankiewicz, who's the dude that wrote Citizen Kane, and it's about the writing of Citizen Kane. Fascinating. I'm there for that. That is totally what I'm there for. It's going to have great performances. It's a David Fincher film, so it's going to be amazing. Like, I'm completely on board. Then you've got a movie that's debuting this weekend, which is Seth Rogen appearing in American Pickle, where it's Seth Rogen playing a modern-day sort of uh, mid-30s, not quite a slacker, but certainly someone who hasn't quite made entirely what he wants out of life. But then he encounters his great-grandfather, who is a man that... Uh, came to America as like a immigrant in the 1920s, fell into a uh, vat of pickles, uh, ends up being pickled for you know a <laughs> uh, hundred years, and comes out in 2020. And it's kind of about this sort of generational divide and the promise of what immigrants came to America for to provide their future generations with a much better life than they had, and whether or not if you're a modern day person, you're living up to the ideals of what your forebearers had sacrificed so much for you to be able to achieve. Anyway, that's kind of an interesting idea. Apparently, it's pretty fun, and it's getting some very positive reviews. Debuts exclusively on HBO Max this weekend. Mm. Okay, so like these are movies which would ordinarily play in the cinemas, but they're not being made for cinemas anymore. They're being made for home. So movie, movie distributors like Disney are looking at the shift that's happening where these streamers are just producing their own movies that have big budgets, uh, stars that people want to see. And they're like, well, soon, why would people go to the movies to see most films? Because... You know, the experience at home is just as good, if not better, for the thing. Because when I asked you, why don't you want to go to the movie see Baby Teeth? The response you gave to me was, going to the movie sucks. <laughs> well, and yeah. Very quickly, why, why don't you like the experience? And I'm not that... like shooting it down at all. I think you're going to say some very common universal sort of thoughts on this. No, look, I, I don't know whether I will, but I, I um, maybe my unique experiences are I grew up in a really small town that didn't have a cinema. So I didn't have that um, weekly kind of ritual where I went with my parents and had fun. And, you know, I probably saw like a handful of films um, up until I sort of became a teenager at the cinema so it wasn't this kind of ritualistic thing and i didn't like look for you know we would do it when we went away on holidays or something but it wasn't like i don't know it always just seemed like a a, an interesting thing you know the other reasons for me now is that i just don't like people very much so having to sit around a a big group of them (laughs) while i'm watching a film is really off-putting um i've uh, i would much prefer to be able to do it at home working uh you know pause when i need to get up and, and you know i grew up in the video i definitely grew up as a video kid so watching films in my lounge room is much more uh, relaxing and satisfying to me than having to make the effort to leave my house and go and pretend to be social. Look, I would say that going to the movies generally does suck for most people. And look, I'm someone who I don't have kids that I have to worry about. So there's definitely a lot less sort of impediments to me going to the movies. But if you do have a couple of young kids, which you do, First of all, you have to worry about, can I take those kids maybe? Do yeah, I totally. Yeah, yeah. And we to do look after yeah them? of course. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's a bit of a challenge to sort of overcome. If you do take the kids to the movie, that's a adult ticket for you. So, look, I'm a Telstra customer, so I think I get $14 movies through the Telstra app if I order a ticket that way. But let's say $14 for me, $14 for a partner. If you've got two kids, like, that's probably like another 10 bucks each. 
like let's get into like fifty bucks to just get tickets. We've spent you don't want like a bag of candy yeah, when you get there. We've easily spent like seventy five bucks on snacks and crap yeah. by the time we go. Well, that's it. If you want snacks, like you can pop into Coles or something beforehand and buy a few bags there and sneak it in in a bag, which you know most people do. I certainly do that all the time. Uh, but like that's you know three or four dollars for like a bag of candies taken. You might want a bottle of water or you know a coke or something taken as well. So you're looking at bare minimum of like another four dollars there. So any movie I see by myself is getting to like the $23, $24 mark just out of my own gluttony as well as the movie ticket. And then if you're getting like public transport there or you're paying for petrol to get there, there's the time investment because you've got to spend like, you know, half an hour-ish to get to the cinema, if not longer, depending totally. on where you're going. You know, there's just like a lot of investment of money and time to go and see a movie. And then you get there and there's the chance that there might be rude people in the cinema that upset your experience, you know, Generally, the idea of lots of other people around. I go at like 10 in the morning, so there's never anyone around. So that's not <laughs> yeah, yeah. a huge concern for me. But like going to the movies just kind of sucks. But there's benefits to going to the movies. And those benefits are that there's a technology gap that exists, which is when you go to the movies, you're seeing it on a massive screen. You're seeing it with really good sound. For sure. You can't really get that at home. But the thing is that technology gap's closing. So at the moment, like people have home cinemas at home. Screens are getting bigger pop down to your JB Hi-Fi, like you buy a TV, it's probably a 65 inch or higher. Yeah. Like the average these days seems to be 75 inches. I noticed the other day when I was shopping around. Like TV's just getting bigger and bigger every couple of years. And like, I noticed some TVs in there, I think were like 85 or 95 inches. <laughs> like, you know, they are getting bigger and they're kind of affordable as well. So the biggest TV I saw in, well, the biggest like affordable TV in there was probably like the $8,000 mark which that's more than I'm spending on this TV. Yeah. So let's not sort of dream about that too much. But like for my budget, which would be, you know, maybe up to like about two grand, like I'm getting like a 75 to 85 inch TV for that. Yeah, it's nuts. Like that's pretty good. Um, and when you start getting screen sizes that big, like that's kind of where the idea of going to the movies because the distance ratio from the couch to your TV versus the big screens where <laughs> yeah. you're sitting in the cinema, it's not that different. Like it's, it's yeah, fairly yeah. comparable. But essentially, movie studios are also looking at the two forms of competition. One, it's that Netflix and streamers are going to have these movies, but also, two, the technology gap's closing. VR, AR, these are things that are emerging technologies. Right now, I can put on my VR helmet. I can watch a movie on a big screen. Um, Amazon have got a great app for that. Netflix have an app as well. It's a bit garbage, though. But the Amazon app, basically, put the goggles on. You're sitting in a cinema. You're seeing it on a big screen. And the resolution's not quite as good, so it kind of falls apart there. But by and large, if there's a brand new movie that goes straight to Amazon Prime, I've got the same experience sitting on my lounge room as going to the cinema, effectively. Like, the technology, like, it doesn't quite look as good, so it's not quite yeah, there. But, yeah. like, you kind of see where in a couple of years' time, it will be that good. Yeah. Yeah, so there's that technology gap. So you've got these movie companies that are kind of freaking out right now. So the reason I wanted to talk about this this week is two things. One, there is the news at the moment that in the US you're seeing a deal between AMC cinemas, not the biggest cinema chain in the US, but it's not insignificant either. They've signed a deal with Universal, or well, NBC Universal, where they're shrinking the release window down from three months, so 90 days, to 17 days. Wow. So they'll play exclusively in a cinema for 17 days, and then Universal can then put the movie up on iTunes or wherever for 20, 30 bucks, and people can watch it like, on demand then. Studios want to do this, because it costs a lot of money to promote a movie. So if they're spending, yeah. you know, 50, 60 million dollars to get the promotion happening, all that money's just down the toilet because sure you've got the cinema release taken care of, but then you have to mount a campaign for home video later on and 
like it's just not quite there. So their thinking is if we keep on promoting it, basically we can put the message out there saying, go and see it in the cinema and then on such and such a date, you know, stream it at home. So people like you who don't want to go to the cinema and fair enough, uh, still have access to that movie. Yeah, that's so amazing, isn't it? It used to be such a big gap. It used to be months. I remember when yeah. it was like a year like, on v video or something like that back in the VHS and days. And look, this is just this just one studio with one chain. Like it's there's still other chains that needs to come on board for them to be able to actually go ahead and do it. But it just means that there's a bit of a weakening in the yeah round at the moment for this. So you've got that happening. You've also got the news this week that Mulan, the live action Mulan, is going straight to Disney Plus and not to cinemas. It'll play in some cinemas around the world, but primarily it's now a Disney Plus product. And they're saying that, hey, for $30 American, $29.99, you can just watch it through Disney Plus. And they're saying, look, this isn't our major game plan. We're just doing this because of the current situation. But you have to think, look, the technology exists and Disney Plus do this. They didn't just say, hey, Dave, do you think we can do this? And then someone adds a few lines of code and it happens. Like this is built into the system. Yeah, absolutely. So they're going to use this to understand like what sort of value they can get from launching a mid to high budget movie direct to Disney Plus and sell it at a higher price. And bear in mind, when Disney are releasing a movie, they're not seeing all the profits that come through. When they release it to the cinema, they've got a 50-50 profit share with the cinemas. So they're only making so much of the budget back that way. And then the rest of the money is when they on sell it to other like, places to screen it over the years. So they're probably looking at the math of it saying that, look, if we just sell it ourselves, if we are not distributing it through iTunes and other places that also skim off the top, but it's purely, we're going to talk to the 50 odd million people that subscribe to Disney Plus. And like, even if five, 10% of those people like decide that they want to pay $30 to see their brand new movie, like that's probably enough to make what they were going to make in the cinema anyway. Wow. I didn't realize it was exclusive to, to I, th I assumed it would be on all those video on demand. Purchase I don't know. Like they only talked about it being on Disney plus. So I think it's just a Disney plus play. Have they indicated how long until it'll drop into the regular Disney plus library? No. And they probably won't sort of give that information either. Cause they actually want you to pay the. Yeah. Money it's interesting. It. So yeah. Like it'll probably be at least a year. I'd imagine. So if but my question is that if you pay the $30, how long is the license to have that film? Mm, like, is it just going to be 48 hours? Will it be like a week and a half? Will it be Will it like for the life forever? of the movie? Yeah. Like, you know, how many people, how many people are actually going to like rent it out more than once? I'd assume not many. No. It, so it probably makes sense. It's going to be like a lifelong license, but who knows? It's a brand new thing. Cool. When does that happen? I'm keen to learn about that. Uh, so this is in a couple of weeks time. I don't have cool. the date in front of me. Uh, but the other thing that happened this week is I went and saw Back to the Future 2 at the cinema. Yeah. And I saw it at the brand new cinema in... Uh, so Hoyts have some cinemas at the place called the Entertainment Quarter in Sydney. It's the worst cinemas in the world. They're hard to get to. Like, they're just kind of adjacent to the city. But public transport to get there is a bit annoying. It's probably about a, like a 15, 20-minute walk out of the CBD to get over there. Like, there's just nothing around there unless there's a football match on. And if there's a football match on, you don't want to go to the cinemas there anyway because there's <laughs> football hooligans around and drunk people at the bars nearby. And it's just a pain. There's nowhere to go and have dinner beforehand that's any good. Like, it's just kind of... It's a <laughs> terrible place to go. But there's a reason to go there now because they've got this thing called the Samsung Onyx screen. And first of all, I'm going to talk about what I saw there, which is the 1989 and 1990... Films Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, 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 Stop. Little girl, little girl. Stop. Look. I need to bore you. Hoverboard? Where is he? 
Now, Chris, that bit there, I'm sure you've seen Back to the Future 2 God knows how many times. Countless times. Yeah. Like, you know exactly what's happening in that scene right there, right? Yes. Because I deliberately chose a scene then that had very little dialogue, but had all the music cues <laughs> and just that one line about the, hey, kid, can I borrow your hoverboard? Yeah, yeah. You know exactly which bit that is. And like, I could just like picture it in my mind's eye as I was doing that. So I went to the movies to see Back to the Future 2, and I saw it on this Onyx screen. Now, I deliberately chose a film that was a little bit older and a film that had been upscaled to 4K because the Onyx screen is a 14-meter screen. It's in your cinema. It's 4K resolution on the screen. It offers a peak brightness level of... Uh, what is it? I'm look, trying to look at the distance here on my screen. 146 FL. I'm not even sure what an FL stands for. Uh, L is probably luminary, but I'm not sure what F would be. Um, so apparently it's about 10 times greater than what's possible with the standard projector technology. Wow. The thing is, there's no projector on this. Effectively, that's just a whole bunch of like small screen panels that are assembled side by side to create a much larger screen. And so it's removing the idea of what cinema is, which is a projected image against the screen. That's not even happening. I went to the cinema to watch a movie that I could have watched on my TV at home on a very big TV <laughs> inside the Hoyt's Entertainment Quarters cinema. Now... I knew about the screen. I kind of wanted to see what something looked on it, but I was particularly interested in an older film because how would that look? Something which I was very familiar yeah, with, yeah. but also something which technologically isn't expected to be played on a screen of this sophistication. And I have to say, it looked marvelous. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I was very into it. You could kind of see some grain on it, which was kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. That's not going to detract from it, is it? The film grain. Far not at all. But it, so are it's these incredible. But are these screens in the broader questions... Well, this is, and the broader questions about what's the difference between TV and movies, the new trend in going to the cinema is to literally watch a giant television screen. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's approaching the end of that whole idea of us needing to go somewhere to watch a film at all. I've been talking about like the death of cinema, and as someone who goes to the movies every week, and I see the numbers of people going to the movies just drop off. Like, as I said, I go at 10 in the morning. I used to find there'd be like five to 10 people in there with me. And in the last five years, it's been whittling down to I'm quite regularly the only person in the theater at that time. Yeah, wow. And like, it's an early session. There's not going to be that many people. But when I go there like, later in the day, like it's, I'll go there at like two in the afternoon and there's like 10 people there. Yeah, and yeah. I presume, think of like the rate of attrition from the morning, like that was probably 50 or 60 people back in the day. And then like, Yikes. I don't know what's happening at nighttime because as if I'd go to the cinema in the evening. That is awesome. Well, I'm glad you watched that movie and I'm glad um, you had those insights and I'm sure it's something we're going to talk about a lot more as things go on. I'm really keen to hear how Disney actually play out the Mulan thing as well and see what happens there. Anyway, Chris. Let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. It's been a great chat today, Dan. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, even more than uh, usual. I've got movies on TV to watch. Yeah, me too. I've, to go. I've, I've run out of Jaws movies to watch, but I'm sure there's something else I can watch. Uh, probably something. Uh, if you like, always be watching the podcast. Maybe you'd like the newsletter. It comes via email each and every day. Alwaysbewatching.com. You can sign up to it there. Uh, look, this week, there were a whole bunch of goats bleeding away. And you don't find that in many sort of newsletters about the TV industry. You do not. Goats, Chris. Goats. Oh, I know. You can check that out. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us out on the street walking around. Always be watching. We're always, always, we're always watching. Folks, my name's Dan Barrett. Been joined by Chris Yates. Now, Chris, I believe that we end every podcast with me playing a little bit of music. And this week will be no different because here's our goodbye theme song. See you, Dan. Bye, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>